All right, this morning we are in uh, Matthew 25, starting at verse 31. We've been going through these series of teachings and parables in the book of Matthew leading up to uh, Holy Week, which begins next Sunday, Palm Sunday, because this is uh, how Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew is leading up to the events of uh, Good Friday and Easter Sunday. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He'll place the sheep on the right, but the goats on the left. And the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick, and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry, or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister to you? Then he'll answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous in eternal life. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we thank you for, for drawing us here today, for calling us here today to worship you. For worship is what we were made for. And Father, we pray that our hearts would be shaped by your word. That it would form us. It would form us into faithful, loving, serving people. And God, we we know that we need this to happen by the power of your Holy Spirit. So Father, would would you be here and meet with us? that we would experientially have contact with you by your word and by your spirit. Shape us and change us, Lord Jesus, that we might reflect your glory. Amen. This, uh, this series of teachings that we've been covering, I, was, I, I put them in a preaching schedule uh, as as a part of a, a narrative lectionary. I was using uh, these assigned readings for a, a lectionary schedule that some, some churches use. And I, I have to say that this is one of the real strengths and benefits of, of preaching from a lectionary is that it makes you preach stuff that you don't want to. Because honestly, if it was up to me, 
this part of Matthew 25, I'd probably skip over. Not because I don't believe in judgment or, or something like that, but it's just, I, at its face, if I opened to Matthew 25 and I saw this section, I'd be like, you know what? I'm not super excited about preaching about the final judgment, so we'll just skip to something else. But when you kind of subject yourself to where, what the Word says, when you sort of subject yourself to saying, okay, we're going to move through the narrative as it is. This is what happens. You end up sitting with these, these strong, fierce even words from Jesus. And it's, it's good medicine for, for you and for me to sit here with the Word and let Jesus do His thing. Because this is Jesus uh, being sharp and pointed with His listeners. The Pharisees are the ones that he's, he's speaking to. It starts out this section of teaching with Jesus speaking these woes on Pharisees, and he's warning them and warning the people who are also there that they should be ready, that one day a, a, the story would come to conclusion, a day of judgment is coming, and God will make an evaluation of everything and everyone. And that, that should sort of send a, a tremor through all who listen to those words. And in our, our day and time, the idea that Jesus would present himself as the judge over all living things is something that we'd rather not think about. Judgment is not what we want to associate with Jesus. It's not something we want to associate with God. I was, I was reading... Um, a, a blog post, a story of a woman who was describing how she's decided to, to pursue God and to grow with God by not going to church anymore, um, not being a part of faith. Basically, she said she stripped down everything that she knew and did from her religion and just started with the things that she feels authentically about. And the central organizing principle was that God loves her, which is true. God does love her. Um, and, and she described how now her spiritual practices revolve around uh, listening to music and taking walks at, around her neighborhood at the end of the day and, and these things like this. And what, is, what there is no space for in that story is a Jesus who would tell a story like this. That God would sit there in judgment and evaluate people. But this is the repeated thing. We talked about with the talents, how the master comes and evaluates his servants. And again and again, Jesus tells these kinds of stories, saying, judgment is coming. Judgment is coming. Now, this is not a parable. Before we've been talking about parables, this is not a parable. Some people mistakenly call this a parable because there's sheep and goats involved. And that is a single metaphor within a teaching. This is not itself a parable. But something to, to notice about that illustration is that there is a need for, for separating the truth of the matter. Now, in our minds, if you are kind of thinking about these agricultural terms from our Western North, uh, Western North Carolina, North American categories, what sheep and goats are, this seems like a, an unnecessary judgment. I mean, sheep, fuzzy, no horns, goats, beard, not fuzzy, horns. It doesn't seem like there needs to be judgment made. It's pretty clear. But 
in the ancient Near East, the types, the breeds of sheep and goats that are used don't look like that. So from a distance, sheep and goats very often were intermingled and were not necessarily distinguishable to the untrained eye. So Jesus is describing something that they actually knew needed to happen. And at some level, what you and I should be reminded is that we also need this to happen. Because Jesus is, again, speaking to Pharisees. And Pharisees, on their face, are people of God. They love the law. Love it. You cannot deny a Pharisee that they love the law. We might learn from Jesus that they may not love the whole law. But they certainly love the law to some degree. And they appear to be faithful people. And what Jesus is driving at is in the center of them is that they are actually not what they appear to be. And so he, he says that there will be a day when things will be settled, accounts will be reckoned, and though that which is hidden will be seen. And that which has not been done in darkness will be exposed. Fraudulency is not permitted in the kingdom. There are no frauds in the kingdom. And so sheeps and goats, sheep and goats, sheep, sheep and goats, they are, they are separated out based on the reality of what they are. And it's important for us to hear the basis of that judgment that's going on. The thing that Jesus is driving at here is the conduct of these people and how they have treated forgotten, outcast categories of people. You know, oftentimes in our tradition, in our um, cultural setting, what we, what we are expecting the final judgment seem to, to only be is basically like a, a fill-in-the-bubble test. Like, okay, what is the right answer here? What, what do you believe? And mark correctly on your Scantron. Mark correctly, true or false. That's what we expect judgment to be. And Jesus here is administering a different kind of test instead of what do you know or what do you think? What did you do? What did you do? And Jesus is looking at these categories of people and saying, you sheep on my right hand being welcomed into the kingdom, you did Feed the hungry, you gave drink to the thirsty, you clothed the naked. And Jesus, this is this little thing right at the end there. He says, you did this to my brothers and sisters. You did this to my brethren. Jesus says, you take care of the community of faith. Because in the Gospel of Matthew, this language of, of brethren Brothers and sisters, he used throughout the gospel to make clear that he's talking about the circle of disciples and the people that follow Jesus. He's saying, when you take care of one another like this, and not just pass a theology test, but you actually put into practice care for one another in costly and uncomfortable ways, this is sign, this is evidence, you are a sheep, you are a righteous one. And I've seen it, because when you do that, to them, you've done it to me. And the, the reveal is the reverse. You have not fed the hungry. 
You have not given drink to the thirsty. You have not clothed the naked or visited those in prison. You failed to serve me by failing to care for these people. There's, there's something remarkable about that on a couple of different levels. One is Jesus' particular care for the community of faith. Now, we know the rest of the stories of Jesus. He also very much cares for people who are not in the community of faith. There's plenty of stories that, that tell us that. There's many actions that he does to show us that. But in this story, what he is saying is that in the circle of the brethren, the circle of the brothers and sisters, you cannot just pay lip service to the king and not take care of his people. And that, that, that gives us a question. Do we see our brothers and sisters on our left and our right in that kind of tangible responsibility? Am I responsible for my spiritual community in ways that cost me something? And if, if church becomes just a place where you can come on Sundays as an event, and you go home and you live your life however you want, entirely disconnected from the people that you came to the event with, then you are disconnected from the nature of the kingdom in a real and important way. The brothers on your left and your right, the sisters on your left and your right, they mean something to you. You are part of them and they are part of you. Now, Jesus will elsewhere also teach that kind of tangible care should be offered as well to people outside the community of faith. And there's a reason he tells the story of the Good Samaritan. There's a reason he, he makes meals with people with who are not ordinarily part of that circle because God commands his people to care for people outside of the boundaries as well. But it seems that this is a tiered responsibility. And first and foremost, the responsibility is to care for each other. And you can see it borne out in the early church as well. The, the first real conflict and problem in the early church is, how do we make sure that the widows in our midst are taken care of? Those are, those are Christian people of Jew and Gentile background, re, reassessed in the identity of Christ alone, not, not their ethnicity, their race, or anything else. How do we make sure that our brothers and sisters are taken care of and fed? That's the first conflict that the church encounters in the book of Acts. So this is part of us. This is part of who we are. Now, that, for, for many of us, might be a challenge. Additionally, it's a challenge to think, Jesus is going to evaluate me on the kind and quality of life that I live. That, if you're like me, that is troubling. <laughs> because you, you may see only a part of me. I see me. I see the hours that I spend on myself, the money that I spend on myself, the care that I spend on myself. And it is alarming to hear Jesus say that God sees it too and will himself weigh our lives. 
And it's not just Jesus who says this, although that should be enough. Paul also says it. In 1 Corinthians, he says, your life will be evaluated. Your deeds will be evaluated. And he says, some of you will just have straw in the fire and will disappear. And some of you will be left with gold and, and, and enduring material that will be left from that purging fire. And those are the things that you've done for God. Those have eternal, lasting value. So there's this conviction in the scriptures that your life matters. The things that you do matter. And unfortunately, and many times in the church, especially in the West, in our culture, we've, we've made following Jesus an entirely intellectual exercise. We've made it entirely about the, the number of things that we believe correctly. And we've cut out the things that are a sign of our obedience to those things that we may in fact believe correctly. You know, this is how we can look back in our history and find in our own Presbyterian churches people preaching the gospel on one day and the next day going to protest that black people could go to school with white people. That kind of disconnect happens shockingly easily. And Jesus says that is a troubling troubling thing. And we should be worried about that. See, this is, this is, I think there's two ways to make mistakes with this passage. One is to not let it trouble you at all. Is to find a way by skipping it, find a way by theologically rationalizing it, Find a way to tone down the volume of what Jesus is saying so that you never let him disturb you. And you may even say, look, I, I'm committed to the truth. I will let Jesus disturb me. I'll let Jesus' words disturb me. That's fine. But I'll let other words of Jesus disturb me. And Jesus here is presenting himself as the king, as the master. And it is his prerogative to trouble you and me in any way that he chooses because he is the king of the kingdom. And so it is a mistake, disastrous, dangerous, consequential to not let this passage trouble you because Jesus means to trouble us who listen. Now, there's a further mistake. There's a second mistake that you can make. You can come to this passage and you can start to ask the wrong kind of question of yourself, which is, have I done enough to get in? Have I done enough to be in? And that is not the question that Jesus is aiming at. But if you're like me, who's grown up in the church, that's the kind of natural progression I go through with a passage like this. Well, how do I make sure that I clear the bar so that I can get in there? What do I need to do to pound open the door of the kingdom and, and make sure that I can get in? And that is not the point of this teaching. The point is not to lay down the roadmap of how to get in. The point is to make clear the character of the people who are in. 
Because what does Jesus identify the people as? The ones who have done these good things. He points to them and says, these are the righteous ones. It's important that he doesn't say, these are the ones who have made themselves righteous, who have worked hard and buckled down and made sure they have become righteous. He says, these are the righteous ones. And these ones over here on the left, the goats, the one who have not obeyed, these ones are not righteous ones. What's happening here is a reveal of the truth of the matter, not providing for you and I a roadmap, a ladder by which we can climb or decline into the good place or to the bad place. Because that version is just a kind of vague moralism that everybody in the world believes, whether they're religious or not. And Jesus has already, through all of his teaching, centered the nature of the kingdom on himself as the king. What he is talking about here is a reveal, not a roadmap. What the rest of Scripture is clear on is there's, there's only one way to be righteous for the kingdom, and it is to be made righteous. It is to be made righteous. Paul will... will engage this argument with the natural Pharisees, both the literal Pharisees like him and those who are like the Pharisees, and he'll engage this question throughout the book of Romans, how does the righteousness of God get applied to me? How do I become righteous? And the story that he will tell is, there is nobody who is able to be righteous. There's no one who is able to to stack their deeds on top of one another. He starts with Gentiles. He goes to Jews. And the conclusion at the beginning of this opening section of Romans is, all have sinned. All have sinned. There's none righteous. There's no one. No one is righteous. No one is able to be righteous. So the question then becomes, how do you become one of these righteous ones? And Paul's answer is not, Make sure you feed enough people and give them enough drink and clothe enough people. And if you hit this invisible, unknowable quota, then God will tip you over the line and you'll become a righteous one. He says the only thing that can make you a righteous person is if God gives his own righteousness to you, an otherwise unrighteous person. The only way that you can access that It's not a trade that he initiates, but by invitation as a gift that you accept by faith alone. What he says again and again throughout his letters is you are made to be a righteous one as a gift by faith alone. Because even in that, God demands preeminence. He enters into no trade with any man or woman. He will not allow even his own people to share the spotlight with him. It is his generosity that makes you and I righteous. So what then should we do as people who have been transformed by Jesus, by the gift of righteousness? How then should we hear this parable? It should unsettle you. 
My status is won by Christ alone. And I say that I believe that. But it doesn't touch anything in my life. What do I really believe? Is your heart, is my heart being exposed? Not as a lover of God, but as a lover of myself. And Jesus' warning then rings true and applies to all of us. There is a day when there will be an account. An accounting of what is true and what is false. And Jesus wants you in his kingdom. Jesus wants you to really and truly love him. If you're reading this passage and thinking, God is a coin flip. I'm not sure what he really wants here. It kind of feels like he's sitting up there with a thunderbolt, one kind of itching to strike some people down. If that was the case, why would he tell you? Why would he tell us this story if he was not, in fact, calling us to him? If he was itching to strike you down because he, he's not really sold on you, Why would he tell you that he wants you to be a part of his kingdom? He loves you. He knows that your life and mine comes to its fullest fruition when we are a people that love Jesus and love the people that Jesus loves. We are most fully alive, most fully who we were meant to be. When our hearts And our minds are touched by God, but our feet and our hands as well. Because then we are fully human. Loving and worshiping God and tending the garden of his world like he always intended from the very beginning of the story. You you may be sitting here hearing this passage and you may be troubled. You may be unsure. What I want you to hear is invitation. What I want you to hear is that God is calling you to himself. What I want you to hear is that this king of this kingdom is worth a kind of love that consumes you. That this king is great and glorious and seated high on a throne and is himself so glorious that he displayed his power in coming in the form of a servant and dying for you and doing all of the things that he has called you and me to do likewise. He is that gloriously good. And he's in front of you this morning. And you may never have responded to him before. You may be a religious person who does good. You may be nothing close to a religious person who's doing good. And today, maybe for the first time, you're seeing Jesus arrayed in splendor, sitting on the throne, and he is there for you. And what he wants for you is not judgment. He's not eager to throw the bullets down, the bolts, the hammer to drop on you. What he wants is to gather you in. And today, the only way that you access that kind of joining to God is if you would just say, I need you and your gift. I cannot be good enough. I need you to be good enough for me. He wants your trust and he is worthy of your trust. And you may be here today. You're, you're, a, you're a sheep. You're a person who's followed Jesus and you are sort of mentally inventorying your life 
and saying, goodness, the, the evidence of that has grown small. I, I have sort of settled into a complacency, a self-focus, a self-obsession, a kind of theoretical love of Jesus that has no actual ramifications on my life. And this morning, what God is doing is putting himself before you and saying that the life in the kingdom consumes your whole life. And you've been living shallow, less than lives when you focus on yourself and live for yourself. But before you is the possibility of the kingdom. And when people love Jesus rightly, goodness, the hungry are fed. The thirsty are not thirsty anymore. The naked are clothed. People of God, we are, we are invited this morning to have our kingdom imagination re-stoked. It is, a, it is a wonderful and good thing as people of God to imagine. What would it be like if, if everybody loved Jesus? Wouldn't it be great if, if everybody believed the right things? And it would. It'd be wonderful. But we're encouraged to, to think even larger than that, that they would believe the right things, but they'd also be cared for and loved and that wounds would be cleaned and nobody would be too outcast for the love of God, that we would be able to go even to the very edges of our town, the darkest places in our town that we can imagine. Even there we might find our brothers and sisters that we might share our lives with. That right here on the edge of Grovemont, the kingdom of God may be pushing into people's lives in really tangible ways that might even put food on their plate. That is a vibrant, lovely kingdom that reflects the loveliness of the king. And if this morning you are realizing that Jesus has been sort of boxed in in your life, this is, this is not some terrifying finger wag in your face. This is the beckoning of the king. This is the life that he has provided for you. This, this is the life that his people live. So the gospel is before you. The king is before you this morning. How then will we respond? Individually, together, how will we respond How will we respond in the privacy of our own homes? How will we respond as a church together? Will the people in our lives hear and see that the king is good, better than any other king? Or will we keep Jesus in a nice safe box that makes us just the perfect amount of comfortable. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we thank you that we can trust you as a just and good judge. And that, that we have this teaching, we have all your teachings, we have your life on display before us.